today on Quest, Father Daniel Duplantis. Life is a quest for logic and reason. It is a quest to find balance between science and faith. Life is a quest for knowledge and understanding. But most importantly, it's a quest for personal discovery. Whatever your quest, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Welcome to Quest. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Todd Fisher, and this is Season 2 of Quest. For those of you that might be new listeners, let me tell you a little about me. I'm the founder of Metatomics and the author of the best-selling book, Metatomics, The Grand Design. I'm a philosopher, a theorist, and a metaphysicist. I'm a perpetual pupil of theology and an expert in comparative religious study. I've also extensively researched the mind-body connection, anatomy, and physiology. I'm a researcher and a storyteller. And in order to tell this story, the research is necessary, and part of the research is the search. And that brings us to why I created the Quest podcast. A quest is a search for something. And this podcast will show you how we know what we know through interviews with people that have incredible stories of dedication and perseverance. To me, curiosity is part of what makes us human. And there's still so much we don't know. There's joy in discovery. It's what drives us. It's our quest. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Quest. Today, my guest is Father Daniel Duplantis, and our topic is, If we were in the end days, would we know it? Here are perspectives on it in this incredible interview. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Father Dan. Welcome to the Quest Podcast. Hey, Todd. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. good. So uh, I've already been lucky to to work with you on a sister podcast that... Uh, my company has. Uh, you were on the Religious Hippies podcast, and I really enjoyed uh, the conversation that you had with her. And I was like, I've got to get you on mine and talk about something. I got to figure out a topic I want to talk about. It. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I've got a really cool topic today that I want to touch on that's really, I think, fairly current with how people are feeling in the world today. But before we get into it, you have such a really interesting, cool story about how you became a priest. So I wanted you to share with my listeners a little bit about your backstory and what you were like growing up and you went to the Air Force and then eventually uh, migrated over to become a priest. Would you share a little bit about your early life? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Houma, Louisiana. Uh, so it's about 60 miles southwest of New Orleans, which uh, when I say something like that, people are surprised there's something more or less south of New Orleans. Um, but we're down here. Um, I grew up uh, in a very Catholic family, so both sides of the family are very devout. I think both sides of the family praying for a priest in the family. Uh, and so um, I'm actually uh, a twin. I have a twin brother, Matthew. Uh, and so we did everything together more or less for 19 years, including going to the same college with the same major uh, before I went to the seminary. Uh, but growing up, 
I uh, did a lot of fishing, uh, started martial arts when I was seven years old, and I just got my third degree black belt uh, back in December. So that was a really, really cool thing to do. Very intense test with that. Uh, so it's uh, the Kukiwon style Taekwondo out of South Korea. Uh, so I've been loving doing that for 20 years. Um, and then also I had a uh, interest in the military at a young age as well. Uh, I have an uncle who married into the family uh, and he was in the army for 20 years. And when I entered the seminary, um, he said, Dan, he said, uh, we need a lot of priests in the military. So he said, I really think you should consider becoming a chaplain. So I kind of took him up on the invitation and I started doing some research into what do chaplains actually do, uh, looking at uh, also uh, specific branches, Army, Navy, and Air Force. And I talked to my bishop and uh, when I told him the idea, he said he had some kind of personal debt to the Air Force that he owed them a chaplain. And so he said, here you are, you have my blessing. Uh, so I've been serving in the Air Force now. This June will make five years. Um, and so um, I am transitioning over to become a more or less full-fledged chaplain. I've been a candidate for the last four and a half years. Um, but have been to some really, really awesome places, including Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, where the Hurricane Hunters are, uh, and also Barksdale Air Force Base up in Bossier City, Louisiana, that's by Shreveport. Uh, and that is where we have our B-52 Stratofortress bombers. So I've done some really cool things over the last few years, but uh, yes, I'm currently the associate at the Cathedral of St. Francis de Sales in the Diocese of Homa Thibodeau. Wow, well, you know, we, we talked about being in the military. Uh, I was reading about that there aren't a lot of chaplains in the Air Force or generally in the military, that there's actually a lot fewer than the need is. Um, I think I was reading that the Air Force had 60 priests currently on active duty serving 80,000 Catholic airmen. Is that right? Is there really a yeah, lack that's, of... That's, that's pretty accurate. Um, and that's the thing, when you look at the amount of chaplains total in the military, it's not just priests. We have just about any type of religion. Um, but Catholic priests is what we call HDLD. It's called high demand, low density, meaning that there's a low density of, chapel, of Catholic priests, but we have such a high demand because a quarter of the entire military is Catholics. Um, and so with that, with the shortage in the priesthood, we've had a shortage in, in Catholic chaplains. And so the Air Force is actually doing pretty well off compared to our, our sister services. When you look at the Army, um, the Army has more chaplains than we do, uh, but they serve more Catholics. Uh, and then the Navy has fewer priests than we do. I think they have about 40 active duty priests but they serve many more Catholics in the Air Force because the Navy chaplains serve the Navy, the Marines, the Coast Guard, the Merchant Marine, uh, and all their components. That's active guard and reserve. Uh, so uh, we really, really do need more priest active duty. Uh, and that's the idea behind the Archdiocese co-sponsored program is to get guys to go active duty for at least five years, if not longer. Wow, that is, that is very interesting. Tell me what a chaplain does in the military. What purpose do you serve there? Is, or do chaplains act like, uh, are you actually having a service or are they more like counselors to people? How do they function within the military? It's really all of that. Um, so we say that, that chaplains have two purposes really primarily. Uh, the first one is providing the needs of our own faith group. So uh, for me, that would be providing the sacraments to Catholics in the military. Uh, the second thing is providing for the needs. I'll, I'll kind of repeat the first one against the second one, providing the needs versus providing for the needs. Uh, providing for the needs means that if we have someone who's a different religion from us, or even like, you know, different denomination, if we have a Protestant come up to us uh, and need something, that's prov we provide for their needs as best as possible. So for example, if the commander receives a religious accommodation request, 
from from someone, uh, it's their responsibility to make sure that it is that it's, it's granted or at least fulfilled, we're usually the commander's means of doing that. So if we need to find, uh, like for, for someone who's Jewish, if we need to find a civilian rabbi to come and perform a particular service, we make sure that we provide for that need. So we will call a civilian rabbi. Uh, as a Catholic priest, I would not facilitate Jewish services myself. Um, sure. At the same time, we do perform things like counseling. In fact, I think we would say that's about 90% of what chaplains do. Um, there's a lot of walking counseling or, or we'll have people who uh, will be, uh, we'll have like uh, commanders or we'll have first sergeants who will, uh, who will refer their airmen to us uh, and say, hey, I think you should just go see the chaplain. And so we'll get a call from the commander or the first sergeant and they'll say, hey, I'm sending you somebody. Um, and we just sit there and we listen because uh, in the military, the only people who have uh, what we say is privileged communication or 100% confidentiality is the chaplain corps. Uh, chaplains, you can come in and tell us anything, uh, and we cannot tell a soul. It, it, it's in many ways derived after the Catholic seal of confession. Uh, and so there are times where we can divulge if we're given written permission by the, uh, the service person. Um, but other than that, even if they say, chaplain, I'm, committing, uh, I'm, I'm contemplating committing suicide, we can't tell anybody. Best thing we can do is to get them to self-report. Um, to get the help that they need. Or even if they say, uh, chaplain, I'm, I'm thinking about killing the base commander tomorrow. Uh, we can't say anything direct other than maybe tell the base commander, you might not want to come to work tomorrow, uh, something along mm. those lines. Uh, but yeah, we do a lot of, um, a lot of just behind the scenes, we'll do um, work for, uh, for funerals as well. So we have, a, you know, we have military customs and courtesies for funerals. Uh, and so we'll take care of all of those things as well. Uh, with the honor guard. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of different things that chaplains do. It's a very busy, active uh, type of priesthood for those of us priests who end up going that route. That's fascinating. Are, are chaplains generally officers or enlisted men, or does it matter? Is it both? Chaplains are always officers. Um, and that's because uh, chaplains in the military have to have a master's in divinity. Uh, and so since you have a, an advanced graduate degree, uh, it qualifies you as an officer. We do have enlisted in the chaplain corps, and, and that's in the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and depends on the branch, but we all call them more or less about the same thing. We call them religious affairs, specialists, religious affairs, airmen, um, and those are our enlisted people who, uh, who they're trained to kind of be like our eyes and ears in a sense, uh, and so in many ways, they're with the enlisted. Uh, they kind of bridge the gap between are enlisted who might have a problem coming to a chaplain because they see the officer rank as opposed to the cross or the, the tablets on our uniforms. Um, and so the uh, religious affairs enlisted have the, the approach communication as well. Um, and then also they take care of helping to uh, maintain chapel facilities. Uh, religious affairs specialists usually are, they're combat trained, whereas chaplains are not allowed to touch weapons. We're considered non-combatants. Uh, our religious affairs airmen are usually the ones that we're paired with uh, when we're downrange on deployments uh, as, as uh, I guess, more or less like a bodyguard. They don't like being called that, um, but that's more or less, they're the ones trained to do that if necessary. I see, I see. That's interesting. Any uh, chance you might um, laterally move over to Space Force and be the first priest in space? <laughs> well, so the way that the Space Force <laughs> is working is kind of how the Marine Corps works with the Navy. Um, in, in terms of, of priest is that though I don't think we're going to have specifically designated like, for example, I won't be able to commission as a Space Force officer. I think that would have been absolutely awesome. Um, but the, I think the way it's going to work is that just as the Marine Corps has Navy chaplains, the Space Force is going to have Air Force chaplains uh, since they're both in the Department of the Air Force, even though they're separate services now. 
Um, and so I imagine that just like the Navy assigns Navy chaplains to Marine Corps bases, uh, they're going to assign uh, Air Force chaplains to Space Force bases and we'll still maintain our designation as Air Force chaplains. Yeah, I see. I see. The first priest in space idea, I think, is a great idea. But <laughs> the same thing when I found out we were getting a space force. Not going to lie, that, that, that thought did cross my mind. <laughs> I want to know. So, you know, you've become a priest. So when did that, when did you have the first thought about doing that? Was this something that goes back to your a young boy and you're like, oh, I'd love yeah. to be a priest? Does, yeah. It does. It goes back that far. It does. Um, I remember before I was in pre-K, so I must have been maybe about three years old. Um, my grandparents would babysit my brother and I before we got to school. And so um, I remember while mom and dad were at work, uh, both sets of grandparents on my mom's side and my dad's side uh, had religious supply catalogs. And I would look through these catalogs and I would pick out like vestments and, and, and chalices and things like that. So from an early age, I remember like, you know, at least having the desire to do those things and, um, and playing mass at one point. I remember uh, actually my mom cutting out little circles of bread and pretending I was handing out communion. Um, and uh, I started altar serving when I was in fourth grade. Uh, and I guess you could say I never stopped. I just kept getting promoted. <laughs> wow. Wow. So you became a deacon and they, eventually you, you decided to, that you wanted to become a priest. So tell me how that transition happens. How do you go from being a deacon to being a priest? What's right. involved in that process? So when you enter the seminary, at some point, you, you, every seminarian will become a deacon that ends up becoming a priest. Um, and the idea is that you progress through the different orders of the church. And so, uh, and, and, and Amber knows a lot about this, especially uh, because she goes to the Latin Mass a lot. I actually celebrate the Latin Mass as well. Um, we have what's called major and minor orders. Now, in, in the Norvis Ordo Mass, the minor orders have more or less been suppressed uh, and reduced down to two, and that's lectern and acolyte. And so what happens is as you go through the seminary, you kind of, you, you, there's different stepping stones towards the priesthood. So at some point you're instituted as a lector. Uh, so you would read at masses. Um, then we also have um, acolytes, that's the next step. And so acolytes, uh, they also serve, but they can also purify the vessels. They can do communion services. Uh, acolytes can purify the vessels at mass. Um, I think I said that one already. Uh, I mean, they can do exposition uh, of the Blessed Sacrament. They can't do benediction, but they can at least do simple exposition. Um, and so when you get to your last year in the seminary, you're normally ordained a, a, what we call a transitional deacon, meaning that you're not gonna be a deacon for very long. You're in a sense learning how to be ordained before you become a priest. And so as a transitional deacon, uh, I know at our seminary in New Orleans, we had a five month internship. So we were put in a parish um, for our last summer in the seminary and then the first half of the fall semester. Uh, and so that way we're getting hands-on experience doing uh, weddings, baptisms, funerals, um, getting to preach. Uh, and so uh, it's a supervised internship. And so we get basically scored also by our pastor. We also have a lay support committee um, who is responsible for meeting with us frequently just to let us know how we're doing, give us some feedback. Um, they would give us evaluations of our homilies uh, and so there are different things that they're looking for as they listen to my homilies, just to give me feedback on what's been working, what's not really working, um, any kind of recommendations. Uh, and so uh, we, we get, and I think that's a really cool thing that our seminary does is that, you know, we get like the lady involved uh, with getting to form their priest, which they are absolutely proud of being able to do, um, to, to say that they get to sit there and, and get to give us feedback, you know, from families, from from young old couples, uh, from single people, you know, every walk of life, they get to give us feedback 
um, on, on what they want from us as priests, as people who are ministering to them. So it's a really, really cool diaconate program. Uh, and so I was very fortunate that we were able to do that. That's incredible. That's really interesting. I've always wondered about kind of that, how that, how that, how the whole, how the whole, how the whole system worked. I've known right. a lot of regular church attending people that have become deacons and kind of achieved the, like the highest level they could become without right. becoming a priest. Yeah. And I think in some cases, I think I might even, and I might correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think you can be married and be a deacon, right? Is if you're a permanent deacon, right. And, okay. and, and that's different from what, from what we do is because as transitional deacons, you're going to be a priest. You are a seminarian. Um, right. The permanent deacons are guys who have discerned that they're called to be, uh, to be deacons. Uh, and, and yes, they can be married. Uh, if they're already married, um, then their, their wife normally has to uh, agree to every step of the process because she's in many ways involved in his ministry. Um, once you are ordained a deacon, uh, if you're not married, you cannot get married. You do take on celibacy if you're not married as a permanent deacon. Um, and if you're a married permanent deacon uh, and your, your wife passes away, you cannot remarry um, is the idea behind that. So at some Interesting. point, you, know, you, you, you probably would end up becoming a, a celibate deacon if your wife passes away or if you, you've never been married before. I see. I see. I'm wondering, you know, uh, it seems on the on the news, if you hear anything about a religion, it's generally bad these days. Right. <laughs> and I think a lot of religions have been dogged by the media in terms of improprieties within religions. And I wonder, do these things affect, is the priesthood in jeopardy of having young people that want to join it because of this, because of the system of media trying to break down church or just generally maybe families leaving the church over time, the church is getting fragmented. I go to, I travel all over the country and I, I try to pop in churches from city to city. And some of the things that disturb me is just the lack of younger people in church today. And uh, is that happening within the priesthood? Are there fewer and fewer people enrolling or have the numbers remain steady? Um, I mean, well, I'll I'll tell you what it's looked like from the last decade, at least, is that um, the seminaries, at least in in Louisiana, have been popping. Um, We've been almost full to capacity and seem to get bigger and bigger every year. Um, And I remember, I think about a year or two before I entered the college seminary, uh, as an undergraduate, uh, I think the enrollment at, at the seminary was about 70, 80 guys, something around that. Uh, by the time I had entered and the time I graduated from that seminary, we were up to about 150. So we had almost doubled in the span of about five years. Um, and then at the graduate seminary, uh, we were full to capacity to the point where they were telling some of the guys that uh, we don't have room in the back parking lot anymore where the seminarians would normally park. We need a few of you guys to start parking in the front circle. Uh, and so, um, at least in Louisiana, we're experiencing the opposite problem. I mean, you look at, at the vocations posters, because most dioceses have a poster of all their seminarians. Um, you're seeing, like, for the larger dioceses like uh, New Orleans and Lafayette, uh, who have somewhere in the ballpark of about maybe 30 to 40 guys, uh, which is incredible to, to see that kind of number. Uh, even my diocese, we're the smallest in Louisiana, perhaps one of the smallest in the country. We only have 39 church parishes. Um, but we've maintained somewhere in the range of a dozen to, I think, up to 18 was the highest we had, which was a really good number for us. Uh, ideally, the ratio you want to have uh, is for every uh, three church parishes, you want one seminarian in your diocese. So we have 39 parishes in our diocese here. Uh, we want to have, ideally, uh, about 13 guys per year in the seminary. 
Interesting. So when you uh, complete the seminary, do, do you do people have their picks of places where they want to go? Are you assigned a place to go? Do you stay in your local area? Are you does someone within the Catholic Church say you're going to go to Philadelphia and you're going to work in this church? How does that in the work? Right. So you stay within your diocese. Uh, so, for example, with Palma Thibodeau, um, we're a very small diocese. Most people have never heard of us before. Um, we're so small that you could probably drive across our diocese uh, east to west in about an hour, uh, maybe not even that long. Um, we're very, very small. We're the equivalent of about two and a half counties, uh, which you look at some dioceses, like I think Montana, for example, is one diocese for the whole state. It just depends on you know uh, population density of your Catholics. Um, and so what happens is like, I will always stay within those two and a half counties as a diocesan priest, except when I go active duty with the Air Force. Um, but as far as assignments go, the bishop is the one who basically makes the assignments, but he has a priest council and a personnel committee that meet regularly throughout the year to look at who, who is, is upcoming, who is ready for a move, who's kind of reached the end of their term. We do, in a sense, have terms as priests uh, in assignments. And so they look at who's ready for a move, who has maybe requested a move, um, and kind of just, you know, talking and praying about what's the best fit for the parish and the priest. Uh, and, and so they're looking at what each, each priest's uh, specific gifts are. Uh, for example, the bishop knows that I like working with schools. Uh, my mom is in her 32nd year teaching. My dad's on the school board. Uh, I was an education major before seminary. That's just the family business. So the bishop knows I'm comfortable with schools. Uh, and so I was at Nickel State University for six months. Uh, and then now I'm at the cathedral with our own parochial school. Um, so they look at your gifts and things like that, and then they, they uh, usually meet throughout the whole uh, spring, uh, for usually from about this time of the year, in, in early part of the calendar year, up through uh, April and May is when they finally get to making those decisions uh, and notifying the priest of who's being moved to where. Um, and so, yeah, in a sense, you can kind of tell the bishop, we usually have one-on-one -on -one annual meetings with him where he asks, like, how are you doing? Do you like where you are? Um, you know. Uh, and things like that. And so we kind of get to say, you know, what we'd like to do, what kind of charisms we'd like to be involved in, but more or less he and, and the personnel committee make the decisions of who's going where. I see. How long is the term? Uh, I think it really depends on the diocese. Uh, in Homa Thibodeau, a normal pastoral assignment, as, as, a, as I mean, as a pastor specifically, uh, most of our pastors are assigned for about six years. Um, you'll see some cases where uh, like uh, our newly ordained priests are usually assigned as associate pastors for three years, which is relatively short, uh, considering the shortage of, uh, in, in the priesthood um, is we, we're trying to get guys to become pastors. Uh, and so usually you'll be an associate for about three years and then get your first parish. Um, uh, sometimes what happens is the bishop will assign you as an administrator of a parish uh, for a year, which has you know, a little bit less canonical privileges than being the pastor of the parish. But that's kind of more of a probationary period to see just like, is this a good fit? Um, you know, is this going to work for the future? And if at the end of that year, they say, yes, this will work. Then they'll assign you as a pastor for six more years or something to that effect. Um, we say that there's term limits. At the same time, the bishop can always just say, hey, uh, I really need you to move. Uh, and, you know, uh, you could, if you want to say no, like say no, but I really kind of need you to go to this place. And I know you're not quite done with your term, but that happens. We take that, that promise of obedience and we know. Um, that can happen. I didn't intend to get moved uh, to a different parish six months into being a priest, but the bishop said, hey, uh, the cathedral needs a new associate pastor. Uh, and with COVID right now, the needs are greater there than at the university. So um, it's kind of the conversation that happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you, with it, and this kind of bridges into the topic I wanted to get into today, but I think everyone can agree that 2020 was 
very unique year and it was hard for so many people. And I remember, you know, it was funny because I had just really launched my Quest podcast um, when COVID started to hit. And I had two or three episodes that had been pre-recorded, all professional, you know, nice sound studio work, like real. And then the world shut down seemingly kind of overnight. And then everything became Zoom interviews and every, like everything changed how people were interacting. And I remember one of the first things that really bothered me was church closures, because I felt like that was a church was an essential service. And I want to know your feelings on that, because it's more, to, to me anyways, it's more than just, um, you know, you're communing with God on that particular day of the week that you would go to church. But there were also other services. A lot of churches fed people. They had, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in their facilities. Like there were a lot of other reasons that churches needed to stay open. And for me, it bothered me when churches were forced to be shut down. What are your feelings on that? Was that the right thing to do? Oh, man. I mean, uh, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of feelings there for sure. Um, I think most of us would say that it was certainly unprecedented. The fact that churches were shut down more or less globally. Um, I mean, you look at all the different plagues and pandemics that, have, that we've had around the world throughout the centuries, and I don't think any, at any point in time, uh, churches throughout the world were closed. Um, and so I'm, in many ways, we were asking the question of like, um, okay, well, I mean, what does that say if we're not allowed to, in times of pandemic, to be able to pray, um, and, and which I think is more important during times like this than any. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I understand the safety perspectives and things like that, but I, I think in many ways, um, you know, and I, this is what I'll say also, I don't think you can completely shut down churches. I know we say that, you know, we had to stop having public masses and things like that. Uh, but in many ways, the churches, in a sense, didn't shut down um, because in many ways, we, we tried as much as possible to continue whatever ministries we were doing. Um, you know, I remember uh, when, when all this really kind of broke out last March, the seminary let us go home to finish the semester. And that's how I ended up at, at the university. And, and almost as soon as I got there, we were figuring out how do we live stream a mass from a cell phone? Um, it, was, yeah. it was bonkers. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was like, wow, like we've, I never imagined in the seminary. None of us did. No priest ever imagined we'd have to live stream our masses from our cell phones. Um, <laughs> And so we were doing that. Uh, we tried, I think uh, we were one of the first parishes in our diocese, maybe even in the state, uh, to try to offer some kind of drive-through confessions. Uh, we had a golf cart that we already had rigged up for uh, confessions on campus. And so we would park it out uh, right by the road by the church and people came in their cars and we heard confessions. They're sitting in their car. We're sitting in, in the golf cart, you know. Um, and so we did that. And we heard, uh, I say we, I was a deacon at the time. I was you know, just kind of helping direct traffic in the lines at the time. Um, but the priests back in, you know, back in March and April were hearing confessions sometimes for three hours on a Saturday. Um, and so and that's the thing is I, I wouldn't say, yeah, I know it changed a lot about the way we worship. Um, and thank God we're, at least in Louisiana, we're back to, uh, to more or less normal in terms of, you know, having masses again. Um, but I, what I'm encouraged to see was that the churches, in a sense, didn't completely shut down, at least not in Louisiana. We tried as much as possible to offer whatever services we could. Yeah, yeah. It was really crazy to me because Walmart's open, churches aren't open. And it just There was just something that was really odd and unnerving to me about that, that, that there was a government in place that could 
shut down all the churches. And it was just really weird situation for me. I still think about it a lot, my feelings oh, yeah. on it. And, and I think we're still, you know, what we're seeing, especially play out in the courts, uh, is, is, the, is the constitutionality of something like that, you know, um, because I, I, I think many governors in, 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 in just any kind of, you know, government authorities were realizing that our, our constitution guarantees the right to worship. Um, and so with that, because that is a guaranteed right, and that's in the Bill of Rights, first of all, it's, it's yeah. the amendment in the Bill of Rights. Uh, what we're seeing play out in the courts is, is that, okay, well, maybe we can't, we can't tell people they can't worship. And if part of their worship, for example, with Catholics, is, is going to Mass, then constitutionally, we can't tell Catholics they can't go to Mass. Um, and so we're seeing that play out in the courts right now. Is it completely fixed yet? I don't think it is, but we're seeing it more and more in, 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 in different states. Uh, churches are, are winning more of these cases because we're realizing the Constitution guarantees the right to be able to worship. And if that includes, for example, going to Mass, then people should be able to go to Mass. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm anxious to see how all this unfolds because according to the year 2020, you have the right to worship, but from the safety of your own home, <laughs> you know, right. it's really, yeah. you know, I'm a product of the eighties. I'm uh, 51 years old. And so growing up in the eighties, I was surrounded almost daily with the threat of total global nuclear destruction. It oh, was in yeah. the it was in the news every day. This was me at 13, 14, 15 years old. It was, you know, we're one day closer to nuclear war. All the entertainment that was made, that's what it was about. Um, and it was mad, mutually assured destruction. Like it's all there was in pop culture, entertainment and news. It was this threat of the U.S. and the Soviet Union going at it and destroying the entire world. Right. And that's what it was like, you know, for me as a as a young teenager. And the first time I've this, I think in 2020 is the first time I've ever felt that grim feeling again, that I felt when I was 13 or 14 or 15 years old. And uh, this, you know, pandemic, you know, virtually came out of nowhere. And no, you know, no one had an eye on what it actually was. No, there were every symptom, every symptom that you would get could possibly be <laughs> COVID, you know, it was no matter my toe itches, oh, so yeah. it's probably COVID, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. And, uh, and at the time when it really broke, I was, you know, in New York and on the, on the news, you would see there were just body bags and trucks and, you know, trenches being dug to put, like, that's what you were seeing because New York was the epicenter. And I was in there when it was happening. Right. And then it's, then it just became something that went across the country, like a, like a forest fire. Oh, yeah. And it's, and it's still happening. You know, we're nearing a million deaths in the world and, and, um, a quarter of a million in the U.S. and certain cities are hot spots now. L.A. is a hot spot. You know, one in seven people probably have COVID, and we have this slow rollout of vaccines that may or may not work to be determined, I guess. And I think generally a lot of people feel this sense of grim, and the pandemic shut down a lot of businesses. A lot of businesses closed. People lost their jobs. They didn't have money. They couldn't pay their rent. Stimulus checks were few and far between. Um, and I think it got tough for people, not to mention the loneliness people would feel that right. didn't have anyone. Um, so I think historically, people will be writing about this in 20 years, the psychological effect alone of what went on in 2020 and even today. And, and of course, at the beginning of the year, at the beginning of uh, 2021, as we record this, this doomsday clock was just set a little closer to 
to uh, to doomsday, which is the closest it's ever been. And people see this. This is a big news event that happens, you know. And it appears, you know, there's a lot of unrest in the world. We saw that um, with with uh, marches and riots and different things that happened last year. We saw this at the Capitol at the beginning of this year. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, the, all these dark things happening, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, the topic of this podcast I really wanted to get into today was if we were in the end days, would we know it? And I wanted to bring in really a spiritual perspective of this, a religious perspective, because those that study the Bible certainly know there are creation stories, the beginnings, and then there's also kind of those end stories, those the book of Revelation type of thing. And I wanted you to kind of maybe touch on some of this today, your feelings on the world we're in today and how we approach that from a religious perspective. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, um, it, it's funny because I actually had to kind of look up what the doomsday clock was. Uh, I guess in Louisiana, uh, most people are more concerned with Trump season than, than the doomsday clock. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't, no one I know of around here has really talked about the doomsday clock. I had to look up what it was. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, like the, I think with that concept, like, would we know? Um, uh, I think at least from a spiritual perspective and, and looking at the gospels themselves. Um, I think Christ says no, <laughs> in a sense that we, we probably wouldn't know because uh, what we see is, is, is in different places around the gospel. Um, in fact, actually, it's funny that, you know, today um, I was actually celebrating the Latin mass this morning. Uh, and today we celebrate the feast of St. Scholastica. And so uh, she was a, a virgin. Um, and so for the common of virgins, uh, the gospel reading um, is the story is the parable of the 10 virgins. And at the very end of the passage, uh, and, and maybe I'll give a, a brief summary of that for our listeners today, um, the parable of the 10 virgins, you have uh, the bridegroom. So the groom is coming for the wedding feast. Uh, he's delayed in coming, it says. And so, and, and, and we would say that the bridegroom represents Christ. Um, and so he's delayed in coming. Uh, and so uh, you have these 10 virgins who have their oil lamps and it's in the middle of the night. Um, and, and some of them brought extra oil just in case they had to make it all the way through the night. So five of them brought extra oil. The other five did not. And so the, uh, we would say the unwise virgins, the ones who did not bring extra oil, are asking the wise ones who did bring extra, give us some of your oil. And the wise ones say, no, um, because uh, we might not have enough for ourselves to make it through the night. And so they had to be ready for when the bridegroom came. And so the unwise ones had to go in the middle of the night. Uh, this is, it says it's about midnight or, or something to that effect and go find oil somewhere. The merchants are all asleep. Uh, and so the bridegroom finally arrives and the wise virgins go into the wedding banquet with him and the five are left outside. And in the very last thing the gospel passage says for the chapter, it says, stay awake for you do not know the hour when the son of man will come. Um, and so this is the thing, I, I, you know, I, I know there's a big preoccupation with like the end times and things like that. I know a lot of people are trying to quote Revelation, the book of Revelation. Um, and, and my thing is this, um, I, I, I think that it goes back to this gospel passage is just being prepared um, uh, in, in doing what the wise virgins do and, and that's being ready no matter what. Um, I, I think that in the history of the world, in the history of the church, we've seen similar situations where we've had maybe not so much a global pandemic, but we've had definitely some epidemics. Um, we've had lots of wars. We've had world wars uh, in two in the last century. Um, and so I think when we're looking at, at the end times, I think what we're seeing is, is more or less just a cycle of history repeating itself. Uh, and because you know, humanity is, is still in a sense uh, um, prone to, to fall, 
um, you know, we are redeemed, but still in a sense prone to fall. Uh, we will keep making the mistakes of history because in a sense, we just fail to learn them. Um, and so this is the thing is, I, what I tell people is, 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 is really to try to calm down um, and, and really just ask yourself like, okay, well, you know, are you ready at all times? Uh, if Christ comes tomorrow, are you ready? Uh, if he came like right now, if he, if he got me like that during this podcast, I mean, pff, where's Father Dan? Where did he go? You there, Father? Uh, you know, um, am I ready? And so I think that's the question we're having to ask ourselves is really no matter when he comes, uh, are we going to be ready if it's now or if it's 10 years, Lord knows when. The question is, are right. we going to be ready? Right. And you're accurate on that. It would be you vanishing from the podcast and not me because it's <laughs> probably pretty. <laughs> um, I wouldn't know. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Like that makes perfect sense. And that to be ready is, is, is the key. I want to know, so in, in the book of Revelation, how should people interpret this book? What would you tell a person in your church about that? Is this something written in metaphor? Is this something that should be taken realistically? How do you decipher that? <laughs> all right. So the answer to that question is, is, is kind of a both and. All right. Um, so if you look at, uh, I think the document is Dei Verbum, um, which is one of the Vatican documents on, on the role of sacred scripture in the church. Uh, what the document says is that there are really four senses in which we can read scripture. One of them being the literal sense of what is the author in his time period and with his audience trying to convey. Um, and the other thing is there's, there's three, we would say, spiritual senses of scripture. And so like the moral meaning, um, the, the, the anagogical meaning, things like that. Uh, and so we're looking, it, it, it can be both. And the thing is, Revelation is, is probably the most misinterpreted book in, in the whole Bible. Um, and people say, because the, the other name for it, the Greek name is the Apocalypse. Um, and so I think what tends to happen is people try to read Revelation as if it is a play-by-play -play prophecy of how the world is going to end. Um, and, and what we will say is that's really not the case, is, is you have to look at what the author, which is identified as John, um, what John is saying. Um, and what he's doing is in many ways, he's prophesying about in many ways the end of the world as they would know it. Uh, when you look at the different figures, um, you look at a lot of the creatures in Revelation, um, and, 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 and there's a correlation to specific figures. Like you look at like the beast, like the dragon, the serpent, whatever you want to call it. Um, the, servant, the, the serpent most of the time is, is, is anagogical or uh, is, is, a, is a sign for Nero, uh, the emperor Nero, who say you know, the dragon came in and swept away a third of the stars in the sky. Uh, when you look at the persecutions um, under Nero, that's kind of what it's getting at. So you see there's, there's like this literal sense in which he's writing in a particular time period for a particular community. He's writing for the early church. Um, and then we see that the church is triumphant in the end. You know, we have the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and so, and we see, you know, the, the woman in the sky, which we interpret to be the blessed mother, um, crushing the head of the serpent. And so with that, you know, it, it's, it, there's, there's, there's so many ways to look at it. Um, what I would tell people is this, um, I would not just open Revelation and just start reading from the beginning without having a good commentary uh, to go with it, whether that be a, a Bible podcast, whether that be a commentary book. Uh, there's some great material out there from Catholic sources on how to, how to interpret Revelation. I would not recommend watching a History Channel program on Revelation because those tend to take a very different, uh, different perspective than what should be taken. Um, but yeah, and, and, and part of it too goes back to the genre. This is what we would call um, 
the uh, apocalyptic genre of sacred scripture. And so when we look at that genre, that's not just Revelation. Uh, we're also looking at books like Ezekiel. We're looking at the book of Daniel, um, which have a lot of these prophecies about, in, in some senses, the end of the world. And like you can look in the prophecies of Daniel, and we hear this in the Nativity Proclamation every year, uh, at, at, at right before, uh, you know, the, the, the midnight mass for Christmas is we have this proclamation that says, uh, talks about like what year in the prophecy of Daniel that Christ came because it's referring to a specific year. People knew when to expect the Messiah at his first coming, but Christ makes it very clear in the gospels, like I said, we do not know the day or the hour when he will come in his second coming. Right, right. Would you, well, I should, won't say whether you should, but could it be interpreted that that second coming would be the biblical end? Is that fair to say? Is there really an end? Is there a biblical end? Well, right, there... because, because all people are destined for, for, for God, you know, and so in a sense, like the second coming, you know, is, is the church believes that we, we say we look forward to the, the life of the world to come. Um, so yeah, we would say that, um, but again, a lot of this comes down to what people tend to be uh, questioning more and more, and, and I guess in more duress about is, is, is this it? Um, and so, um, again, I, I think from a spiritual perspective, what I try to tell people is uh, whether this is it or not, are you ready, is what usually I try to, to lead them at, because this is the thing. Um, I think so, so many people with COVID especially uh, have become so aware of their mortality um, that they're asking that question. And, and so in many ways, what we're trying to do as priests, especially in confession, because we have people who come up and, you know, when I was a deacon and getting to, to talk to people in those car lines for confession before I, before I was a priest, um, as people would say, deacon, like I haven't been to confession in 10 or 20 years, you know, and like I, this COVID thing has me just like, I really need to get right with God. And so I, I think, like I said, in many ways, I try to get people to calm down um, and, and to be what, what we'll call in the chaplain court, even a non-anxious presence uh, to get people to, yeah, come to grips with their mortality, but as best as possible uh, to, to not freak out because that is the end that we're made for. We say like our, our final end, um, if we're looking at like Aristotle's final end, you know, is to say that we were made for God. And so the question is, if that's what we're made for, why should we be afraid of that? We should, I guess people are, are afraid if they're not ready. And I guess that's what it comes down to is, are we ready? Right. Right. That's an excellent point. Excellent point. I, you know, I think what 2020 was such a tough year for people. Do you think when something like what we had in 2020 happens that more people find spirituality in that way? Do you think that there, there, is there a push to go to go into organized religion or try to seek out spirituality in some way when, when things look grim, or do you think it works the opposite and people retreat into their aloneness and things get worse for them? No, I, I, I think it's, it's the former. I think people tend to uh, try to seek out some sense of spirituality, at least. Um, and because this is what we would say, you know, is, uh, again, like I just said, like we're made for God. In, in the sense, man is made for worship. And if we don't worship God, we will worship something or someone else. Um, and for a lot of people, that ends up being themselves if that person's not God. Um, and so with that, I think, yeah, with because I, I saw it again, standing in, in, in those confession lines, uh, talking to people, you know, uh, uh, and so... I think there's a study done recently, I can't remember which one, but I saw an article recently that said um, that with the pandemic, more people have been at least approaching, you know, churches or, or, or different types of religions just to, you know, come to grips with what is happening. Um, and so I think with that, um, when, you know, 
when people hit rock bottom, I think people tend to do one of two things. They either tend to turn unto themselves and wallow in self-pity, or they tend to turn to God. Uh, it's usually one of those things that happens. Uh, it's very difficult to, tr to, to stay at rock bottom. People tend to try to either do one thing, either self-medicate or rise above it. And so I think what we're seeing now with this pandemic is that there are more people who are at least trying to look into religion, maybe not so much committing to it, but we are seeing a lot of people um, trying to do some discovery, try to figure out, you know, uh, what's the meaning of all this? Uh, is there a point in all this? Is there a way out of all this? And, and many of them are coming to ask the question like, you know, God says all the time in scripture, he would never abandon us. And so in this case, you know, um, what is his role in this pandemic, especially if he's the one who's, who's there for us and who does not abandon us in these situations? Absolutely. Those are beautiful words. What, do you, what are your feelings on social media and how it affects people today? <laughs> is, this, is this a good or a bad tool for us? I think in and of itself, uh, we would say social media is, is morally neutral. Uh, what happens is that people will then choose to use it for either good or for evil. Um, and so what we're seeing is, is, you know, we're seeing some people and, and we were talking about, you know, uh, one of the podcasts that you helped to produce with, with Amber Rose, uh, a podcast and, and, and someone who uses social media to great effects to evangelize. Uh, at the same time, we see a lot of people use social media to cast uh, lies, misinformation, hatred, even, you know, um, people who, who from, from what I see in many ways, sometimes hide behind their keyboards and their screens and say things on social media they would never say to somebody in person. Um, and so it really just comes down to what the individual chooses to use it for. Um, so I think in some ways, uh, we can look at this pandemic. There's a lot of people who spread misinformation uh, with this pandemic. At the same time, social media was our means of communicating with our parishioners when we couldn't have mass in public. I, every single priest at that time was turning to Facebook Live um, to stream their, their, their masses. Now, some of them are still on Facebook Live. Some of them have, have branched out to different other types of of, of streaming medias, uh, but that was like the first one. If it wasn't for social media, uh, I can't imagine what we would have done uh, to connect with our people through this pandemic. So it really kind of goes both ways. Yeah, for sure. Technology definitely came in in a pinch in that situation, oh, yeah. for sure. I didn't even know what Zoom was before the <laughs> before I, the pandemic. I didn't either until my professor said, hey, we're, we're doing the rest of our classes on Zoom. Here's the link. Huh. What is I knew it's I knew what Skype was and I had seen, you know, ads for Zoom and I just, I never thought it was for me, but boy, oh, Skype, yeah. I think really dropped the ball on this one that they didn't they did. get the market share I when would, they had a chance. Skype has been around for, for at least a decade, maybe longer than that, Lord knows, but yeah, you're right. Um, Zoom seemed to have come out of nowhere and said, hey, we have a solution and it worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did. It did. And I almost exclusively do my podcast this way now. Right. So it's, uh, it's super handy for me. But it was definitely an interesting uh, year to look back on. And, and we might have just as an exciting 2021 it's to be determined, I think, how this year is going to go. But I wanted to certainly have you on and, and, uh, and have you talk about this a little bit and put people's oh, yeah. minds at ease. But great, such great stuff you had to say. You're such a unique uh, and wonderful person. You're, I think you're actually suited perfectly for this and where you're at today in the world. And, and I even think, you know, this Air Force experience, this w world of being a chaplain is, is assisting in greater ways than could have been imagined maybe three or four or five years ago, how this could come in handy for you too, as another tool. And uh, I mentioned social media, you know, whether that was good or bad, people can find you on social media. And there's a lot of great 
there's a lot of great uh, footage of you breaking boards and doing karate stuff. And this, <laughs> it's pretty exciting social media page you have. But can people find you out there on the interwebs? Or do you want people to? How can they reach you? How yeah, can they find I, you? I, uh, I don't have a lot of social media. I have the, the two I'm usual on more than anything are Facebook and Instagram. So my Facebook is a personal profile, but my Instagram, which is currently a private profile, but if you send me a request more than likely, I'll probably, you know, I'll follow you back and all that. Um, my Instagram handle is father timeline. Uh, it's one word. Father timeline is my fraternity name from when I was uh, a music major uh, because they knew I was going to become a priest. Uh, and they also knew I also have an affinity for history. So they called me father timeline. Um, so if you go to Father Timeline on Instagram, you can find me there. Uh, and I'm usually posting things, you know, at least, you know, sometimes daily, sometimes not. But yeah, usually some cool videos of things I do as a priest. And especially with my martial arts, I have a lot of friends that do Taekwondo with me. And so uh, you'll see a lot of that stuff on there as well. And, and just stuff with the Air Force also. So, um, but yeah, that's. Uh, and if you happen talk. to find yourself south of New Orleans and you don't need a swamp boat, we can actually visit you, right? <laughs> oh, you can, yeah, you can. And you can, you can get here by car, no problem. It's, it's, you know, but we do have some, some beautiful swamp tours down here. Uh, it's a beautiful landscape. Uh, all the, the, the best seafood you can eat in the world. I mean, you name it, we got it down here. This is, I say this is God's country and I'm definitely blessed to be a priest here in Homa Thibodeau. It is, I, I wouldn't, I say there's no place like Homa uh, because for me there, this is a wonderful place to be a priest and, and I thoroughly enjoy being down here. I was, uh, a while back, I was uh, driving through Texas and I thought I should, I should call Amber and see if I could like come through Louisiana and visit Father Dan and like pop in for a visit, but then I, I couldn't make the trip work out to do it. But I was very close, but I do want to pass through and see where you're at and, and meet you in person and oh, for sure, and, yeah, uh, take in take in a mass. That would be a wonderful. But I appreciate you coming out today and uh, and chatting with me. And I hope we can do it again. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Father Dan. Bye bye. Thank you. There you have it, my interview with Father Daniel Duplantis. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you back next week on Quest. Thank you for listening to Quest. Please be sure to rate and review this podcast. This podcast is produced by Todd Fisher and distributed by Metacortex Publishing. This podcast is copyrighted. Previously trademarked or copyright content is used by permission. Be sure to visit the official website for the International Association of Metatomics at metatomics.org or find us on social media for other unique content. And make sure to pick up a copy of the book that started a spiritual revolution, Metatomics the Grand Design, available for sale online and at most major bookstores. <laughs>